Good evening. So, Mother Teresa was once approached by a journalist. And the journalist wanted to challenge her. The journalist had spent some time in Calcutta visiting some of the incredible projects that the sisters in Calcutta were doing to serve the most vulnerable um, in society. And the, the journalist basically said, look, love the work you do. Um, you do know it's only a drop in the ocean, don't you? You do know it's like only a drop in the ocean. Fairly cynical, but her response quick as a flash. She said, absolutely, you're right. Just a drop in the ocean. But the ocean's made up of many drops. This teaching series about awakening the city, we're praying for a move of God that hits London. We're praying for a tidal wave of God's mercy and his grace to hit this city. But you know, tidal waves of grace and mercy, they're made up of tiny little drops. And I want to tell you some stories of the tiny little drops we're encountering at KXC. So um, Emma mentioned that Lois and some teams are hitting the streets of King's Cross week by week just to pray for people, prophesy over people, share the gospel with people on the streets of King's Cross. And here's some little drops that are forming part of what is becoming a bigger wave in this city. So this is from, I think, last week or maybe the week before. A few little testimonies from those that went out. Here's testimony number one. Prayed for a man with a red hat highlighted in the prayer time beforehand. So they met before, had a kind of time of prophecy. Obviously, someone had an image of a red hat. They found the man. Um, He's a security guard and also a Christian. He's had a bad headache that's also affecting his eyes, and God healed him. He was saying how happy he felt afterwards. Testament number two, prayed for a man on crutches. The team had a really accurate prophetic word about a lion, which is what his name actually means. He also has tattoo lions on his body. Had a prophetic word about football. His brother is a professional footballer. And about relationships. He will message about his knee if healed. Let's pray for that one. Testament number three, prayed for a lady who was sitting down with a crutch. She shared that she's just started treatment for breast cancer and was very open to prayer for healing, even though she doesn't believe in God. Believing for her healing. And we all said how amazing it would be if at her next chemo appointment, she was clear. She said she felt calm, light, and peaceful afterwards and wants to come to KXC. Testament number four, one of the groups encouraged and prayed for three Dutch guys who had just come off the Eurostar, a school chaplain and then a law student. They didn't know the last one had a legal background and had a prophetic word about her being a woman of justice. Testament number five, one group prayed for a Thai woman who is Buddhist and was initially not interested in church, Jesus, until God gave a prophetic word about her past that seems to have really resonated. She then asked when church is and wants to come next week. Test with number six, the team prayed for a lady who had a lot of mental and physical health issues and no funds to get a train up north. The team supported her and managed to connect her with the Met Police's Compassion Fund and successfully got her on the 7.02 p.m. train out of King's Cross. Can I hear an amen? Amen. One group also shared the gospel and how it's all about relationship with Jesus, with a man and a woman. And it turns out they'd already been approached by other Christians earlier that day. So encouraging to know we are sowing seeds and going out in unity with other Christians across King's Cross. These are little drops, but the drops are going to form part of a bigger wave. Let's give them a round of applause. So we're in a teaching series, Awakening the City. We're looking at some redemptive shifts that need to happen in our hearts 
first if we're going to see these redemptive shifts happen in the culture around us. Um, And through the series, we're looking at seven cities and how God engages with cities, both in the Old and New Testament. So week one, we looked at the city of Babylon and this redemptive shift from extraction to servanthood. We don't want to be the kind of people that come to London to extract something for ourselves. We want to come and serve what Jesus is doing in the city. Week two, from conflict to refuge, the city of Hebron. Like we see conflict all around us and yet we want to create refuge for the most vulnerable in society. Week three, from slavery to freedom, we see people held captive in all sorts of addictions in this city. We want to proclaim freedom in the name of Jesus. Week four, from individualism to community. There's so much isolation. We want to see a shift in the culture towards family, towards hospitality, which leads us to this moment. We're going to look at the story of Athens, this shift from idolatry to worship. Now, you know that cities are center of culture. We, we all know that, right? Like culture begins to sort of like flow out from cities. And because cities are center of culture, they're also centers of worship. If you look at the word culture, the root word is the, the verb cultus, meaning to worship. In other words, culture is a byproduct of worship. If you want to understand the culture of a city, you've got to ask certain questions. Who do they worship? Where do they worship? How do they worship? Because culture is a byproduct of worship. So as we explore culture, we're actually exploring what are the idols of the city. James K.A. Smith, brilliant writer, he writes this in his book, You Are What You Love. He says, pastors, and I'm just going to project this onto the room as well, um, followers of Jesus need to be ethnographers. Ethnography, by the way, is the study of culture. What forms culture? Followers of Jesus need to be ethnographers, helping their congregations name and exegete their local liturgies. When we talk about liturgy in church, we talk about the things we say and do again and again that form us. But there's liturgies beyond just the church. The city of London has multiple liturgies, things you do again and again and again that form you. Your workplace has liturgies, things you do again and again that form you. And these liturgies aren't neutral more often than not. They're actually liturgies of worship that you begin through these practices to bow the knee and pledge allegiance to certain gods. Louis Giglio, in his book, The Air I Breathe, he writes this, how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy, he says. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, your loyalty. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever, whomever is on that throne is of what's highest of value to you. On that throne is what you worship. If we had time together, and we just sat down, one-on-one coffee, and we try to do a little audit, like discern what are the idols present in your heart, present in my heart, present in my soul. And we started with time. Let's get your calendar open. Where are you spending all your time? What if we then went to the next level, super awkward? Let's get out the bank statements. Where are you spending your money? And then what if I asked you questions about what you daydream about and your values and your priorities? Together, it wouldn't take long to name, that's where I'm bowing the knee. 
That's where I'm pledging allegiance, right? Let me put it another way. Theological language, I know, but orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Orthodoxy just means right belief or right worship. Doxa, meaning worship. Doxology is a, a hymn of praise, right? So orthodoxy is right worship, right belief that overflows into right living, right practices. If we look at how you live, we can discern who you worship. This is how idols work, right? Idols primarily don't go for your belief systems. They go for your longings, your desires. And they try and access your desires and move your desires away from Jesus and towards the idol. And then you find these practices, these liturgies, things you do again and again. And you begin to move towards the trajectory of these habits towards the idol. Right? So when idols begin to sort of creep into the church and to creep into the hearts of the followers of Jesus, they create an integrity gap between like our worship, what we believe, and how we behave. All of us, because we're broken because of sin, have a gap between what we believe and how we behave, right? It's a problem for all of us. So what's the remedy I hear you ask, right? I want to present two remedies to you. Remedy number one, repentance. When there's a gap between what you believe and how you behave, the response of the people of God should be, we repent, right? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we realize there's a gap between what I confess, what I proclaim, and how I live, we get on our knees and we repent, right? That's remedy number one. But there's a second remedy we see in the Western church right now right? Which isn't repentance. Instead of repentance, we're trying to redefine orthodoxy, right? If there's a gap between what we believe and how we behave, one response is to say, well, we really like the practices of this cultural moment. Like, we really like living this way, and we know there's a gap between how we behave and, and what we believe, and it's awkward, but we don't want to change our behavior. So what if we begin to sort of change some of our beliefs, Right? We know that Jesus is Lord, but can't we just extend orthodoxy, our beliefs, so that we can have Jesus and the idols? Like Jesus and autonomy, Jesus and comfort, Jesus and my reputation, Jesus and my sexual fulfillment, Jesus and filling in the gaps, right? If you were to look at this graph, that's a fairly terrifying graph. It's the decline of the church in the West. I've chosen one denomination, which is the Church of England, because that's the denomination we're a part of. But this would be true of most denominations in Western cultures, right? Where you can see there's chronic decline. Chronic decline. Um, this is from 20, um, 1960 to 2019. What's more terrifying is the steepest bit of decline is the COVID years, like post-2019. If this was a, a graph of a patient in hospital, right, you would say, this does not look good. Like, we're getting closer, like, end-of-life care. Like, I don't share these stats or this graph to sort of sow despair. Like, I know the stats, and I feel so hope-filled about this moment in the church. I know these kind of stats, like, historically speaking, are like a precondition for a move of God. And I say, bring it on. But I'm not ignoring what's happening right now in the church in the West. And we should be asking questions, why the chronic decline? 
Like, why these stats? Why is the church in the West dying? And there's multiple answers to the question. But I want to suggest one key answer is that rather than pursuing purity, we're busy redefining orthodoxy. Like, rather than saying we need to get on our knees and repent, we're busy in conversations. How can we slightly redefine what we believe? Because we like the behaviors that are around us. How can we slightly tweak our beliefs? Jesus and a few of the idols, right? We've got to wake up to what's happening. If you look at the Apostle Paul, and we're going to, we're going to look at how he engages in Athens, but we're going to start with how he engages in Rome. When he arrives in these cities across the Mediterranean, his missionary mindset isn't, I'm going to discern what the idols of this city are, and then we're just going to have some conversations about redefining orthodoxy, right? He doesn't do that. He discerns what the idols are and calls the city towards repentance, to bow the knee to Jesus, to proclaim Jesus is Lord. So for Paul, when it comes to his missionary engagement in Rome, as he travels around the cities of the Mediterranean, his end goal, he wants to get to Rome, right? He wants to get to the nerve center of the Roman Empire where culture's being shaped. Because if he can take the gospel to where culture's being shaped, he can shape the culture. So he's desperate to get to Rome. But there's all sorts of obstacles in his way. So he keeps going from city to city, Ephesus, like Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, Galatia, he's moving around looking for the opportunity. When can I get to Rome? When can I get to Rome? And he eventually does get to Rome, right? Um, But the only way to get to Rome is by being imprisoned. So he's imprisoned in Rome, the nerve center of the empire, and he starts writing these letters to the churches across the Mediterranean. A lot of the letters we have in the New Testament are penned when Paul is in prison. I'll give you an example. Philippians, the letter to the church in Philippi. Now, the church in Philippi, they're worried about Paul. Like, you would be worried, right? Worried about Paul. Is he going to be okay, right? And he writes to them, basically saying, don't worry about me. The gospel is advancing. He says this. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You see, the church in Philippi, they were worried, like, is this game over for Paul? Is this game over for Paul? Is he going to be okay in prison? Paul writes, it's not game over for me. It's game on for the kingdom of God. I'm in the nerve center. The gospel is spreading and it's transforming this city and therefore the empire. Listen to how he signs off at the end of the letter. This is like subversive literature at its best. He says, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings. And here it is, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. He's basically saying right here in Caesar's household, in other words, extended family are beginning to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Right? That kind of thing could get you killed in the context of the Greco-Roman world. And Paul says, it's not game over for me, it's game on. Right in Caesar's household, people are proclaiming Jesus is Lord. And, and the ripple effect of this is very significant. Absolutely love it. Paul doesn't head to Rome thinking, okay, how do we gently redefine orthodoxy? He calls 
fight the people right in the nerve center of the empire towards repentance. So how does he wage war on Athens? Well, let's look at the story of Acts chapter 17. For both of you that bought your Bibles, turn to Acts 17, and we're going to read from verse 16. And as we engage with this passage, there's four questions I want you to have in the back of your mind, right? John Stott in his commentary on the book of Acts says, to understand this passage, you need these four questions in the back of your mind. Where did Paul go? How did he feel? What did he see? What did he do? Right? Now, as we engage in these questions, this is going to be some prep work for us as we seek to be missionaries in the city of London. Where are we meant to go? What are we meant to feel? What are we meant to see? What are we meant to do? Right? So let's read the text and then we'll unpack the questions. Verse 16. Paul While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler, great word, trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. In other words, they were living the dream. Um, Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And what's about to come at them is the gospel, right? Back to the four questions. Where did he go? What did he feel? What did he see? What did he do? Firstly, where did he go? He went to the synagogue, in other words, the place of worship, then to the marketplace, right? In the Greco-Roman world, the marketplace was where all of life really happened. It was the center of business and commerce. People would come and buy and sell goods. It was the kind of like the place where the artists would come and perform and exhibit their work. It was the place where philosophers would come and debate new ideas. Everything was happening at the marketplace. So he goes from the place of worship and prayer to the public square, and then he goes to the Areopagus, the law court, the center of governance, right? In other words, he heads to the nerve center of the city, the marketplace, the Areopagus. How did he feel as he moves around this city? What's going on in his heart? And that the Greek word that's used here is paraxunato. It's translated here as greatly distressed, but that doesn't really do the word justice. It's a very, very rare Greek word. It kind of means, you know, when you're really angry, you don't know whether you're going to shout, scream, or start weeping uncontrollably. Have you ever had that where you feel so angry, so outraged, you don't know whether you're going to fall to your knees, start crying, or just let out a scream, right? And more often than not in Scripture, this word is related to idolatry. Like when Paul sees the effect the idols are having on the people of Athens, he doesn't know whether he's going to scream or start weeping, right? What Paul is feeling in this moment is the heart of God towards the Athenians. 
capturing something of the heart of God. You see this with Jesus. You know, when he looks over Jerusalem, this city that's meant to be a city of Shalom, Jerusalem, and he sees violence and he sees oppression. And he, he looks over the city and he doesn't know what to do. He just feels this in his being. Should I scream or do I just start weeping? And he weeps over the city. Or think of Jesus as he steps into the temple courts, this place of hospitality, kingdom hospitality, place of prayer, and it's become a, a den of thieves where people are buying and selling doves so they can make offerings of worship. Now, if you're basically charging people to worship, who does that exclude? It excludes the poor who can't afford the offerings and therefore can't worship. And Jesus steps into this moment. It's like, this is meant to be a place of hospitality for everyone, a place of prayer. And what does he do? He just starts throwing over the tables what's going on in his gut. And the answer is it's paraxunato. It's paraxunato. Do you know what one of the tragedies, and I say this over me, but maybe others in the room will relate to this. We can walk around a city like London and feel nothing. That isn't the heart of God. We can walk past extreme poverty and feel nothing because we've become desensitized to it. We can see addictions and debt destroying lives and families and we feel nothing. We see what idolatry is doing to a city like this and we feel nothing. One of my deep prayers for today is like, Lord, give us your heart for this city. Like we want to weep over this city like you weep over the city. Lord, take the numbness. Help us to feel what you feel. Lord, break our hearts for what breaks your heart. And if you read through the Old and New Testament and just do a word study on Paraxunato, let me give some examples of where you see this word. So this is in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Um, Deuteronomy 9 verse 7 Remember this and never forget how you arouse the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. Now, this part of the story, God has liberated the people from Egypt. They've had 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They then have the 10 plagues, the Red Sea, unbelievable deliverance, right? And what do they do to respond to all that God's done? They build a golden calf and bow down and worship it. And what's going on in the heart of God in that moment? Paraxunito, anger. I don't know whether to weep or scream. And why is God feeling this anger? And the answer is he knows that in right worship we come alive. When we worship Yahweh God, we experience fullness of life. When we worship the idols, it leads us on a path of destruction. And that's why he weeps. Psalm 106, they yoke themselves to Baal, another idol, and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. Just bits of stone, bits of wood. They aroused the Lord's paroxunato by their wicked deeds. Isaiah 65, all day long I've held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually paroxunato me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. You see, when we start worshipping idols and go on this path to destruction, the heart of God, it just breaks because he knows what's happening. He knows that right worship will lead to everlasting life. And it's like, don't do it, don't do it, right? To understand the anger of God, we do need to talk about the jealousy of God. And we don't really talk much about the jealousy of God. 
we have a very earthly understanding of jealousy. And our understanding of jealousy is basically birthed in insecurity. So when you feel incredibly insecure and you see what's happening to those around you, you begin to yearn for that which isn't rightfully yours, right? You want what they have, right? Out of insecurity, you yearn for what isn't rightfully yours. And when we read about the jealousy of God, we find it hard to understand what's going on. God isn't insecure. He's perfect. He's fully secure. So when he watches us engage in idolatry, he's not like, oh, I just feel a bit fragile about our relationship because like, I thought you really liked me, but now I've realized you prefer your own sexual fulfillment. And I thought you really loved me, and now I'm realizing your autonomy means more to you. And I just feel a little bit fragile about whether they really like me. That is not the jealousy of God, right? The jealousy of God comes from his perfection. He's fully secure, right? And he's not yearning for what isn't rightfully his. He's yearning for what is rightfully his, his sons and daughters. He's yearning for their affection. He's yearning for your affection. Because he knows that when you worship him, you'll experience fullness of life. When you worship the idols, they'll destroy you. So he gets jealous for your affection. Let me read these words to you. Exodus chapter 20. This is part of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods. And then fast forward a few verses. For I, the Lord your God, I may... Tough crowd. I may... The answer is always going to be jealous if you want to play this game. It's a really fun game. Exodus 34, verse 14. Do not worship any other God for the Lord your God, whose name is? He's a jealous God, right? This is interesting. Pause one moment. This is his name. Not just an emotion he feels. It's part of his nature. He yearns for your affection. Deuteronomy 4, 23. Be careful not to forget the covenant, the Lord God, um, that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything. The Lord your God is forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's fully secure. He's perfect. He's jealous for your affection. C.S. Lewis said this. We regularly quote this. Idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. Not sometimes. Always. Guaranteed to break your heart. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So what is Paul doing as he moves around the city of Athens, right? He, he can see what's going on. They're missing out on grace. Forfeiting grace. These idols are breaking their hearts. And Paraxunato starts rising in his being like, don't do it. Don't do it. He's feeling anger. He wants to scream. He wants to weep. Paraxunato. He's caught the heart of the father for the Athenians. So that's what he felt. What did he see? Verse 22, he says, I see that in every way you're very religious. Now, in the Greek language, you've got two words for see. You've got blepo, that means to see. And you've got theoreo, that means to see. Um, so what's the difference between blepo and theoreo? Blepo is to see what's in front of you. I see that Lois is wearing purple. I see dot, dot, dot. It's, it's like visibly I can see this in front of me, right? Theoreo, where we get the word theory or theorize, is, is more about understanding. I see this visibly, but theoreo is I, I see beneath this to what's really going on. I see this, but now I, I understand why things are the way that they are. 
right? It's just going in a level deeper. And Paul says, like, I blepo, but more than that, I fear air. I'm, I can see what's going on. Moment of revelation. I can see what's going on in the city. In other words, he begins to identify the idols. So how do you identify the idols? You start asking soul-level questions. Not superficial questions, soul-level questions. What do you daydream about? What do you spend your money on? How do you spend your time? What makes you angry or afraid? If you want to do this, you know, towards a city, you start asking bigger questions. What is the average Londoner? daydream about? How do Londoners spend their time and their money? What makes Londoners afraid and angry? And then you move beyond blepo to theoreo. I see beneath, beginning to understand the idols they're bowing down to, and it's breaking their hearts. want to play a little game with you. Imagine someone from the first century, the Greco-Roman world, is just plonked in a random city elsewhere in the Greco-Roman world. And they were given the task of, come and tell me the God that the people of this city bow down to. So let's just imagine the scenario where you take one guy, you plonk him down in the city of, let's say, Ephesus, and you say, tell me what the people of Ephesus bow down to. And if you plonk this guy on the edge of the city and said, like, you do the mass workout, the idol of this city... What someone in the Greco-Roman world would do, this is how they were trained, right, is they would start on the periphery of the city and they'd walk to the city center and they'd be looking, what's the tallest building? What's the tallest building? And they'd make their way to the tallest building. And in the context of Ephesus, they'd find, oh, I'm standing outside the temple of Artemis because this is the goddess that they worship here. Put them in another city. They'll start on the periphery. They'll basically walk into the, the city and then find the massive temple, the tallest building. Ah, this city bow down to the name the God, name the goddess. Now imagine a scenario where you plonk someone from the first century in London and said, what do Londoners bow the knee before? Where do they pledge their allegiance? Now imagine, because this is all they know, they played the same game. So I want to take you back to 1616, right? Imagine, this is just a picture from south of the river overlooking the Thames, and you said to this person from the first century, um, tell me, what do Londoners believe? How do they bow the knee? And they'd look at the, the sort of skyline, and they'd see all these tall buildings, these spires. And they'd walk around, and they'd realize these are all churches. You're like, ah, oh, this must be a Christian nation. Like, they bow the knee to Jesus, Right? Now, there's a darker underbelly to this story. This is 1616. This is the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade, right? So a lot of the money that funded, you know, building these churches was actually from the slave trade. So there's a darkness to this story too. But someone just plonked on just south of the river looking over the city would conclude this is a Christian nation. All of the tall buildings, they're churches, they're places of worship. Right, fast forward 400 years, um, an artist just did an impression from that same vantage point um, of London 2016, um, and it looks very different. Same individual now looking at the city and begins to walk across the bridge, and he's going to find himself at the foot of a very, very big building thinking, oh, my word. And then he'll conclude, or she'll conclude, this is a center of the worship of money. 
This isn't a Christian nation anymore. They worship money and they worship power, right? If you look at um, the tallest buildings in London, this is um, a look at them starting with the Shard and keep going and eventually you get to Paul's Cathedral, 49th on the list, and then Big Ben. And then if you do like a history of the tallest buildings in London, um, stick with me. I know some of you are unbelievably bored already, but just stick with me, right? You go back a thousand years, what was the tallest building in London? The answer is White Tower, which was one of the residences for the king. But at the center of White Tower was St. John's Chapel. It's a place of worship. And then it was the old St. Paul's Cathedral for 356 years. And then you had Southwark Cathedral for 11 years. And then you had the monument to the Great Fire of London. That was six years. And then it was St. Mary Le Beau. And then it was the rebuilt St. Paul's Cathedral for 229 years. And then you have a shift. It's Battersea Power Station for 11 years. Then you have an ultimate low point of Crystal Palace Transmitting Station. Um, then you have One Canada Square. Then you have the Shard. Um, and if you just look at the timeline, you can almost plot on this timeline when we cease to be a Christian nation, right? When is it? Well, it's around 1939, Second World War. What happened during the Second World War? And the answer is because of the atrocities of that time period, a wave of atheism swept across Europe. And that was a moment where a lot of people were like, nah, done with this. And we ceased to be a Christian nation and we started going after money, and power. And this is just one lens through the lens of architecture where someone would just walk around the city and be like, they don't worship Yahweh God. They don't worship Jesus. They worship money and they worship power, right? Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, which is a brilliant book about how you dethrone idols, which is what Paul spent his time doing. Paul didn't move around these cities trying to like, have conversations about redefining orthodoxy. That's what we're doing. No, he, he had conversations about dethroning idols. And um, Tim Keller says, basically, if you want to dethrone an idol, there's three steps. You need to recognize the idols. You need to do that sort of internal work. What am I bowing down to? Right? You recognize them, first task. Then you repent, which is what Paul does. If you read this, um, Verse 18, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He was telling the story of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And, and how does he bring his message into land? He says this, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. These idols, they're breaking your hearts. They're leading you on a path to destruction, Right? You're clinging to them and you're forfeiting grace. Recognize it, wake up, and repent. Turn around. Like, like just change your thinking. Metanoia, meaning turn your thinking. Like, change your thinking. So we recognize, we repent, and then we replace. Now, here's the thing. When you take the gospel... This message of grace to where grace is resisted, you're going to get pushback. You're going to get pushback, right? When you take the gospel to where the gospel is resisted, there's going to be pushback. And you're going to need courage, which is why Ernest Hemingway um, defines courage like this. I quite like it. He says, courage is grace under pressure. When you take grace to a place where there's going to be pushback, it's going to need courage, right? 
And this is a moment, the church in the West, we need courage. There is the way of the kingdom and there is the way of the world. And to live as followers of Jesus, it requires courage. And yet for a lot of Western churches, the dominant conversation is, how can we close the gap? How can we make it a little bit easier to follow Jesus in this context? In other words, can we just redefine orthodoxy a little bit? Can we find a spirituality where there isn't sacrifice? Can we find a spirituality that doesn't demand us to be courageous? A spirituality that doesn't require courage is a spirituality devoid of power and vitality. Like when we as the people of God take grace to where grace is resisted, it requires courage. So we pray, Lord, give us supernatural boldness. We recognize, we repent, and then we replace, right? We go after Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we go after his kingdom purposes. This is my prayer for KXC, right? Number one, We'd recognize we're missionaries here in London, right? Our ultimate home is Christ, heaven. We are citizens of heaven. We are missionaries here in London. So we go from the place of worship. The rest of the week, we're going to be in the equivalent of the marketplace, the Areopagus, right? As we go to workplaces, social spaces, homes where we spend our time, I pray that we'd go with the mindset of missionaries, number one. Number two, I pray you would feel what God feels towards the city. Where there's numbness and not feeling much at all because you've been desensitized by the city, I pray that the spirit of the living God would awaken your heart, awaken your emotions to feel what God feels. And what does God feel when he looks at the idols of London? Paraxenos wants to weep and scream because the idols are breaking the hearts of their followers. I pray you'd feel that. God feels that and he wants to share his heart with you. So I pray you'd go with a missionary mindset. You'd feel what he feels. I pray you'd see what he sees. Not just blepo, right, sight, what's visibly right in front of you, thereo. I pray you'd see beneath it a spirit of revelation to understand actually what is going on in your workplace, in your home, on your street, in your community. And what are we going to do about it? Number four, I pray that we would, with boldness, take the gospel, take grace, where grace is resisted, right? We do it courageously and we see the kingdom of God advance. So I want to pray a simple prayer blessing over you, right? So I bless you, KXE, to go from this place of worship as a missionary. I bless you, KXE, to feel what God feels, for your hearts to be awakened. So what breaks the heart of God begins to break your heart too. I bless you, KXE, to see what God sees beneath the veneer. Not what's right in front of you, but what's beneath what's right in front of you. And I bless you to do what Jesus wants to do, which is to proclaim the gospel. I bless you to proclaim the gospel of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. I bless you to take grace where grace is resisted, right? And to see an awakening of grace and mercy hit this city. And we pray this in your name, Jesus.